And please have 2 Corinthians chapter 9 open in front of you. And let's just pray before we look at God's word together. Father, we ask now that um, you would make those words of that hymn true for us, that we would um, rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today, and that we would join with um, Asaph in, in Psalm 73 who writes um, that he has nothing in this world apart from you, and there's nothing in heaven that he desires but you. And Father, I pray that that would be our heart. I pray that you would give us um, that heart. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. So last week we looked at chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, where he addressed the theme of giving, primarily of our money. And this week we come to chapter 9, as Paul continues that same theme. It's a chapter with big, uh, life-transforming, heart-reorientating truths, um, and there's a lot to get through, so we'll just dive straight in. Our title is, Our Abundant Giving, God's Abounding Grace. And we're going to look at this part of Paul's letter under three main points, and each of them will be shorter than the last. First, we'll look at the heart that lies behind the gift, and we'll think, what is the attitude of a giving person, and why do they give? Second, we'll look at the gift that lies behind the heart. What is it that creates that attitude in someone? And lastly, we'll look at the fruit of the giving heart. What does a giving attitude result in? So those are the three points we'll look at in these verses. That's where we'll be heading this morning. So, first point. The heart that lies behind the gift. This is verses 1 to 7. Now, verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia, which is the region where Corinth is located, was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So as we saw last week, the Corinthians have made this promise to give a gift of money to the poor Christians in Macedonia. And so Paul says... It's superfluous for him to write to them concerning this gift. The word superfluous meaning unnecessary or needless. It's needless for Paul to write to these Corinthians to encourage them to be willing or to have zeal because they already do. They already are willing. They already do have this amazing zeal. And what an amazing position Paul is in. He doesn't have to write a letter and think, how am I going to persuade these Christians to be willing and zealous. No, he doesn't have to do that. These Christians already have that heart within them and they've already stirred up the majority of Christians who've heard about it. Verse 3 says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I have said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we... And not to mention you should be ashamed of this confident boasting. So here's Paul's plan. He sent people ahead to the Corinthians so that this gift that they've promised can be prepared and the willingness that they currently have in their hearts can be seen through. He doesn't want 
this gift to turn out to be an empty promise that leaves everyone disappointed. So verse 5, he explains, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it be that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Let's say your friend is trying to sell their house and move to another part of the city and you offer to help them move their stuff when it finally happens. You say, of course, my pleasure to help. But then a couple of months later, that date arrives and you see it on your calendar and you think, oh, it's moving day. And what was a matter of generosity has become a grudging obligation. Or maybe you offer to put your name down for Sunday school or the door welcoming rota or the flowers or to provide food for the homeless at Gladstones. And you say, no problem, any way I can serve. But after years of doing it and you see your name crop up on the rota again, you think, oh, it's me again. And what was a matter of generosity becomes a grudging obligation. That's what Paul does not want to become of the Corinthian church. Paul wants to ensure that this gift that the Corinthians have promised is given out of generosity as it should be, while they have this fierce willingness in their hearts to give, so that it doesn't become a grudging, annoying obligation if that willingness they have were to fade. But why does Paul bother? Why does he go to the trouble? Why does he want to ensure this so badly? What's the point? Well, because of verse 6. But I say to you, he who spares, sorry, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So why does Paul bother trying to ensure that the Corinthians give from a generous heart rather than a grudging heart? Because he who, spoke, who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And giving of a grudging heart is sowing sparingly. Giving of a generous heart is sowing bountifully. But what does all this mean? Sparingly, bountifully, sowing, reaping. What's the picture Paul is using here? Well, similar to the children's talk we just had of the sower, if someone sows, if a farmer goes out and sows a small amount of seed, he's going to get a small amount of crops. But if someone sows a large amount of seed, they're going to reap a large crop. That's how farming works. Sowing here being a picture of you giving, and reaping here being a picture of you gaining as a result of you giving. So you sow little, you get little. You sow big, you get big. So Paul is saying, I want to ensure for you, Corinthians, that your giving is, is done generously and not grudgingly. I want to ensure that that is the heart behind your gift. Because if you give little, you're going to gain little. But if you give big, you're going to gain big. So now maybe a question has flipped up in your minds. I can think of three questions that uh, verse 6 brings up that maybe you have. So first question. 
What does it mean to reap bountifully? What actually is it that I'm gaining? Does it mean that I'll gain money and wealth for myself as a result of my giving? And so I'll reap bountifully. Or maybe it's my reputation as others see me giving generously and they uphold me as this giving person. No, it's neither of those. What we reap is righteousness. And we'll see this more in the later verses. We reap the fruit of righteousness in our lives, which itself stores up for us reward in heaven, which we will also one day reap. A little more on that in verses 10 and 11. So that's the first question. Second question from verse 6. What does it mean to sow bountifully? Does it mean the quantity that I sow? So the more money that I give, the more I'll receive in heaven? Is that what it means? That the bigger the amount I give here on earth, the bigger the amount I'll receive in heaven? So the richer I am and the more zeros on the check that I'm giving away, the more heavenly things that I'll be blessed with. So this richer Christian brother of mine or this wealthier Christian sister of mine will receive more than I will because they have more to give away? Is that what sowing bountifully means? Well, let's turn to Jesus for the answer. If you turn to Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Luke 21. It's a very well-known passage. Luke 21, verses 1 to 4. And he, that's Jesus, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites, just pennies. So Jesus said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. Why? For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the liveliness, sorry, all the livelihood that she had. Learn to hold your life on earth looser than you do. See, these rich people are putting in their large amounts of money. Are they wrong? No. Are they sinning? No. Are they doing good? Yeah, of course. And over on the other side, this poor widow is putting in all the livelihood that she has. Just two mites. They're both sowing. But who is sowing bountifully? You see, in the eyes of the world, it's all about how much you put into someone else's hand. But in the eyes of God, it's all about how much you take from your own. Let me say that again. In the eyes of the world, it's all about how much you're putting into someone else's hand. But in the eyes of God, it's all about how much you're taking out of your own. That's what sowing bountifully means. Now, isn't this widow the epitome of Matthew 6? 
turn there with me, a few, flip a few pages back to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll see verses 19 to 21. Again, very well-known verses of Jesus. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now here's the verse. For where your treasure is, where your money is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, where you put all of your wealth, all your possessions, that's where your heart is. That's a public thing. People can see where your heart is by where your treasure is. As my dad said last week, it's not about how much is in your pocket. It's how deep your hand is willing to go into your pocket. So learn to hold your life on earth looser than you do. Now, third question from verse 6. Is this, how can I gain bountifully or reap bountifully if I'm bountifully losing stuff? That seems backwards. You say, that works for farming, Paul. That works for seed. But how does that work for me and my money and my possessions? If I sow a 50-pound note, it's not going to spring up into a money tree. Surely the way to gain bountifully is to hoard bountifully, not bountifully give away. And what makes matters worse, it seems, is verse 7. So let each of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you say, now, not only do I have to give stuff, but I have to do it cheerfully? I have to be joyful about it? Now, why is that? Why should we be cheerful when we give things? We're losing stuff. Why should we be cheerful and joyful in losing our things? Two main reasons. First reason, we should be cheerful in giving because doing so is becoming more like God. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because God himself is a cheerful giver. Now, where do we see that? In the Bible. Luke chapter 12. You can flip back to Luke if you like. Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaking again to his disciples. And verse 32. Luke 12, 32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Jesus here is telling his disciples to not be afraid And then in the same verse, he gives the reason why they should not be afraid with the word for. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for. Now, what is the subject and focus of the reason Jesus gives? What's the main point of his reason?
What do you think? God's given us the kingdom. Sorry? To honour God. Look at the verse again. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The reason Jesus gives for not fearing is not simply that God will give the kingdom, which is fantastic in itself, but it's that God has good pleasure in giving the kingdom. The reason and ground for me and you not fearing according to Jesus is because God is a cheerful giver. God lavishes his goodness and blessing upon you and gives to you so aboundingly that fear cannot take anything from you. So why does God love a cheerful giver? Because when a person gives cheerfully, we're becoming like God. So when you have your name down on the Sunday school rotor or on the door or for the homeless sandwich rotor, don't think that coldly doing your duty is what God is after. Don't think that your heart has nothing to do with it. God loves a cheerful giver. The verse doesn't say God loves a giver. It says God loves a cheerful giver, a giver who takes joy in sowing bountifully. And how easy it is to sow sparingly. Now imagine you were walking through a graveyard and you saw all the gravestones lined up and you saw one that just simply said, he sowed sparingly. What a sad and tragic statement over your life that would be. But don't assume that that day for you is decades away. Some of us here might have already seen our last Christmas. The question to ask yourself isn't, how am I going to live in those final few important years of my life? The question is, how am I going to live in the next hour? Or this afternoon? How am I going to live this evening? Because it might be that you'll be reaping sooner than you think. Second reason we should be cheerful givers. We should be cheerful in giving because, one, doing so is becoming more like God, and two, our stuff isn't where our gain lies. Philippians 1 verse 21. For me to live, sorry, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. St. Paul who wrote 2 Corinthians, writes this verse. See, when you die, you will lose all of your stuff, all the things that you spend most of your day working for will be gone. And yet Paul says with confidence, to me, my death, that's going to be gain. How, how can that be? All the things that we so often and so much give ourselves to, give our time to, our attention, our love, our focus in gaining things on the earth. Paul will lose all of that and yet he'll say, I can die, lose all my stuff and that's gain. 
how can that be gain? Well, Paul's gain isn't in the things of this world. Paul's gain isn't found in money or possessions. What Paul considers gain is dying and being with Christ and bountifully reaping the eternal rewards of the righteousness that he reaped on earth through the bountiful sowing of his good works, namely cheerful giving. Because where Paul's heart is, is where his treasure is. Where Paul's treasure is, you can see that's where his heart is. And that's heaven, not earth. And so he can freely and cheerfully give the things that he has, knowing that his gain doesn't lie in those things. And so he can gladly part with them because his gain lies in heaven. And so Paul is encouraging these Corinthians who already have this willing zeal in their heart. He's saying, I want to ensure that the gift you've purposed to give in your heart to these poor Macedonians is given cheerfully and out of generosity because that's the kind of heart that God loves and delights in. And so as a result of giving in that way, Paul says you'll most certainly reap bountifully. So that is the heart behind the gift. That is the heart that lies behind our abundant giving. But where does that kind of heart come from? How does a person get it? Because it's not natural. It's not a natural thing to give like this. Well, in verses 8 to 11, we see the answer. We see the gift that lies behind the heart. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So what is this gift that lies behind the generous heart? Well, it's the gift of God that lies behind and causes a person's heart to be a heart that chooses cheerfully abundant giving. Now our title for this sermon is Our Abundant Giving, God's Abounding Grace. Now these two things, our abundant giving, God's abounding grace, they're not two separate things. They're not two unrelated ideas that never touch and never come into contact with each other. They're inextricably tied together. They're fixed. You're giving to others and God's grace to you. They're firmly bound to one another. You see, God's abounding grace to me is why I give abundantly. And maybe more importantly, God's abounding grace to me is how I give abundantly. His grace to me is why I give abundantly. It's the reason, it's the motivation. But you can be motivated to do something you're actually unable to do. But his grace to me is how I also give abundantly. That's what makes me able and gives me the capacity and ability to be cheerful in giving. And so God is able to make all grace abound towards you, we read in verse 8. But what does that mean? 
It's God's favour. It's God's kindness. It's God's spiritual inner blessing overflowing to you and in you who believe in him. And this favour, this kindness, this blessing has a purpose. God gives us his grace so that we would have all efficiency, all sufficiency, sorry, meaning that we would have everything that we need for all things so that we may abound and excel in every good work. Now, what are these good works he's talking about? Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 speak about these good works. So if you'd like to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. Many of you could probably say these verses without having to turn there. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And what a gift. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. So many people in life think, what's my identity? Who am I? In Christ, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why didn't God just take your soul to heaven the second that you repented and trusted in Christ's death and resurrection for you and the moment you became a Christian? Because God has good works that he's prepared for you. And he's also prepared you for the good works by giving you his grace through the Holy Spirit so that you have all that you need, not just to do these things, but to have a cheerful and generous heart which loves to do these things and so abounds in doing these things. See, God's grace to us is abounding and overflowing so that our giving becomes abundant too. Now this quotation in verse 9, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Psalm 112. Now here's a really important question. Who is the he in verse 9 and the he in Psalm 112? Well, let's turn to Psalm 112 and see. Psalm 112. Verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. This is talking about a man, a woman, who trusts and fears God. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Skip ahead to verse 9. Still talking about a man who trusts in God. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness 
endures forever. You see, the he in verse 9 and the he in Psalm 112 isn't talking about God. It's talking about a man. This is a description of a faithful, generous person who trusts in God. His righteousness shall endure forever. Now, whose righteousness would you think would be described as enduring forever? God's. And in fact, in the previous psalm, in Psalm 111, that's exactly how God's righteousness is described. So how can the righteousness we have be described in the same way as the righteousness God has? Because the righteousness we have is of God. The same Paul who wrote these verses to the Corinthians also wrote in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, meaning righteousness that hasn't been earned, is revealed through giving? No. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So this righteousness isn't something we achieve or create ourselves. It's a righteousness that we bear like a fruit, but it's God who's made it grow. And the same Paul who wrote Romans 3 writes here in 2 Corinthians 9 verses 10 and 11, Now may he, that's God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed which you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality or generosity which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So who is it who makes a seed grow and produces a flower? It's God. The plant bears the fruit and God's the one who's made it grow. And so who will make you grow and enrich you to produce righteousness? It's God. The believer bears righteousness, but it's God who's made it grow. You see, God has uprooted us from this sinful world and planted us in Christ, in the righteous one. He's who we abide in. And so now we do good works while trusting in God and having faith in his promises to give us grace by the Holy Spirit to do those good works. And so we are enriched by God's supply. And so we can sow bountifully and produce righteousness. And all of which causes thanksgiving. And so finally in verses 12 to 15 we see thanksgiving among other things as the fruit of a giving heart. Verse 12, for the administration of this service, or in other words, the giving of gifts to these other believers, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his 
indescribable gift. So what is the purpose and the fruit of giving? There are three things from these verses. Giving has the purpose of supplying the needs that Christians have. Giving has the purpose of causing others to thank God for the giving of Christians. And giving has the purpose of causing others to glorify God. And Paul writes here that they glorify God for their obedience, for their generous sharing, by their prayer. Now I wonder, could anyone say that of you? That your giving supplies the needs of other Christians? That your giving causes others to thank God for you? That your giving causes others to glorify God for your obedience? Glorify God for your generous sharing? Glorify God for your work in their lives? You know, since God has given you and me as Christians all sufficiency for all things, for every good work he has for you, in effect, you're as godly as you want to be. God has given us all that we need for life and for godliness So however godly you are now is however godly you want to be. You could be the godliest person in this room if you wanted because God has given us all that we need. God has given us life, godliness. God has given us his spirit. So what are you chasing? How are you sowing? Everybody in this room sows, by the way something how are you choosing to sow today notice also in verse 14 why other Christians long for these Corinthians these Christians see the Corinthians and they say oh I long for them and it's because of the exceeding grace of God that's in them what an incredible awe striking thing to be said of a person that someone would look at you and say, I long to be with you because the grace of God is so alive in you. It's almost tangible and it radiates from you. And when I'm around you, I see more of God as I see the good in you that he has helped to grow. What an amazing thing to be said. And so in doing that, in someone saying that of you, your life proclaims this is the glory of God that I, once the crowning glory of God's creation, who then dirtied myself in sin, would be picked up by Christ, who would take my dirt onto himself in order to make me clean and restore me so that now these good works I do and these generous gifts that I give will never be and can never be a testament to my own greatness but a testament to the greatness of God who gives me life and breath and everlasting life and gives me his grace and Holy Spirit inside of me to enrich me, to cheerfully and generously do good works and abundantly give because of his abounding grace that he continually gives to me. And so... After all these things, Paul concludes by saying, thanks be to God 
for his indescribable gift. And what is the gift? The gift is God's abounding grace. I wonder, are you stirred up by God's grace to you like Paul is? Are you made cheerful because of it? It might not make its way to your face, but are you cheerful in your heart? See, God loves a cheerful giver because he is a cheerful giver. And he daily, cheerfully gives to you. So, give. Amen.